Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Number grew up in San Diego and then moved back with his family to Lebanon, where he almost single-handedly introduced the Middle East to the idea of live stand-up comedy. He definitely introduced many American comedians to Middle Eastern audiences over the past decade and more, and he has since toured both there and here in the States as a headliner. You may have seen him on CNN and Comedy Central's The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, and Nemer put out his first American stand-up special, No Bombing in Beirut, in 2017 for Showtime. Nemer sat down with me at Showbiz Studios to talk about growing up in two completely different cultures and starting comedy scenes from scratch. So let's get to it! Gramercy, right? Because I was in D.C. So if I'm going to go all the way back to L.A. Mm-hmm. Then fly all the way back here, I'm just going to fly seven, eight hours to spend a night and then come back. So it didn't matter. I had a couple of meetings already this week, starting oh. tomorrow. So I was like, there was no point. Big meetings? Good meetings. Big meetings? They're only big if they work out. Yeah. Otherwise, they were just meetings. Okay. But yeah, big meet. Well, they should be big. We'll see what happens. <laughs> what was a... Um... So last things first, what was a what was a big meeting in your mind when you were uh, when you were a child? What was, wow, what was the idea I, of like a, a big a big meeting? A big was, meeting. If I met Master Splinter from the Ninja Turtles, <laughs> 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 then I know I made it. <laughs> then I know I was legit. Now I know in your Showtime special, No Bombing in Beirut. Yeah. Uh, you talk about how you moved. You you were born here in America. Yes, sir. And then at the age of ten. Mm-hmm. Your family took you back to the motherland of Lebanon. Yes, they did. Uh, Be- Beirut specifically, or well, I mean, it, Lebanon's smaller than San Diego County. Okay, because so, you were in San Diego, and then you end up in Lebanon. In Lebanon, we ended up in an area called Junior, where we, we had a house which we had left originally was still there, and mm-hmm. a place called Adma. But um, yeah, we ended up going back to to Lebanon, which a lot of Lebanese people did uh, during that period of time. The civil war had ended. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lebanese people were like, oh, it'll be perfect. Let's head right back. <laughs> 35 years of civil war. But what did You'll you... will get right after that. But what did you think as a 10-year-old? Because you had no concept of... I hated it. Middle Eastern history. Oh, my God. I had no idea. I went in as an American. I didn't go in mm-hmm. as a Lebanese American. Cons- your parents didn't consult you? On at 10? Yeah. I would, you know, I'd find it challenging for any parents to consult their kid at that age. I can guarantee you ethnic parents would never consult their children. They don't consult me about things now. Like, like Lebanon, it has water? Yeah, yeah, no. There's a beach? They were convinced that it was it's going to be... It's just like the, California. It, You know, it. You, the thing is, it took me about six months to adjust, but mm-hmm. I ended up falling in love with it. It is It is actually a lot like San Diego. Okay. So it is, it's a Mediterranean place. Mm-hmm. It's not desert. Right. You have snow, mountains, four seasons, beaches, partying, everything. It's, it's literally, it actually makes LA look very boring, Oh. which is where I live now here. But um, when I first got there, <laughs> mm-hmm. it wasn't that great because it was just after the Civil War, but the country rebuilt very quickly. What, how, what effect did that have on your life goals? Because as a kid, you grew up, you think... Like I well, might play for the Padres. Up. Did you yeah. think I might play for the Padres or the Chargers or no, I have actually, those kind of I wanted to be a dreams. stand-up comic ever since I was a kid, since I was like five years old. Really? I was either a Ninja Turtle or a stand-up comic. Okay. So I don't know. Wait, which which Ninja Turtle? Raphael. Okay. 
If it was, uh, I don't know if it was Lebanon, which is the reason why I'm not a Ninja Turtle. Mm-hmm. Maybe. But at least I got the stand-up comedy pit out of it. So yeah. at least there's that. But it it affected not my like overall goals. It, it, I mean, at that age, also, you don't really have a well-formulated plan. It wasn't like they took me out when I was 16 and I was like a varsity athlete about to make, you know what I'm saying? Like right. there wasn't there wasn't a path I was on at that point. So well, I guess- no, like when I was 10, mm-hmm. I was in Connecticut. And I think I had a variety of of goals. I wanted okay. I wanted to play for the Boston Red Sox. Uh, I wanted to be an astronaut. Every kid would like to be an astronaut. Uh, ten. What else? Did, oh, I also I wanted to be a sportscaster. I think I. <laughs> well, I'm I'm close to one of you're them. You're very close. I'm close to one of them. I, I guess my parents were lucky in that I had no aspirations at the end. <laughs> and besides being a stand-up comic. I've wanted to be a stand-up comic since I was like four or five years old. I used to tell everybody. What happened at four or five? That, well, that's like, when, that's, I, that's like, we were in, in the U.S. And I don't, my parents had discovered stand-up. My mom already knew about stand-up. Mm-hmm. She grew up in London. My okay. dad had never seen this in his life before. So they watched, they started watching stand-up at home in San Diego. And they thought it was the funny. My dad, I had never seen my dad laugh ever, I think. Well, there was, it was the 1980s. So there was a lot of comedy on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were watching, you know, all the stand-up comedy. I mean, mm-hmm. you had, it was what, Eddie Murphy, Bill Cosby. But there were also the co- the the cable shows like A&E's at the Improv and there were. Yeah. And I ended up things. falling in love with a, the, the reason I got addicted to stand-up, there was a HBO show that my parents would tape where Dana Carvey hosted. And he brought up a bunch of comics, and I memorized this set that Dana did. Okay. And I used to go around I, reciting I it to everyone. I think that was a young comedian special. Maybe. That he hosted. Yeah, I, you know, I would pay good money to actually find that, <laughs> to be honest. Like, if somebody could f- somehow bring it mm-hmm. back. But um, I memorized this bit that he did about uh, senior, President George Bush Sr. Okay. Um, where it's Topical he, now. Topical now. Uh, and I, I, I wish him, obviously, a, a sp- right. hopefully, speedy recovery and uh, best wishes to him and his family. But not that he would listen, but still... <laughs> Um, it's, it, it was a set about when he threw up on the, uh, Oh, the prime minister of Japan. Japan. Yeah. And it was hilarious. And how he's throwing up and Japanese people are flipping out. They think he's Godzilla. It was a really funny bit, especially for a, for a kid. It had impressions Mm -hmm. and you know, it's Dana Carvey. So it was easy for me to understand before that. I would tell everyone I wanted to be a standup comic because I just loved the fact that it caused people to laugh so much. (laughs) So I just used to laugh. I'd sit in bed with my parents and laugh and laugh, but I had no idea what the hell was going on. I was way too young. But the Dana Carvey bit mm-hmm. got to me. How old were you the first time you wrote your own jokes? I mean, for stage or like, or like, or just for like the cafeteria. Or... I was the class clown always. Mm-hmm. But, but were you stage. always doing other people's jokes, or when did you start doing your own material? Oh, from literally, I you know, I didn't. You start off impersonating teachers, right. doing your own thing. That was from my earliest memories from kindergarten. I was a problem child. <laughs> I just managed to make a career out of something I used to get kicked out of class for. That's how I see it. How how are the teachers in San Diego compared to the teachers in Lebanon? World of difference. In term, it, I mean, in Lebanon, they can hit the kids. So <laughs> so, how much would you get away with in Lebanon before you got nothing? Hit? I used to get kicked out of class. You'd get the mm-hmm. ruler to the hand. Uh, I don't know if you even are familiar with that concept. They make yes. you, you stick out your hand. No, I'm I'm slap I'm, it with I'm a ruler. Older enough. Yeah. Than okay. you to, although we share the same birthday. September 26th? September 26th. Hey, man, how's it yeah. going? I knew, I felt this aura of greatness for me when I walked in. <laughs> it's a big comedy birthday. Is it? Yeah, Robbie Pra. Really? September 26th. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, Bart, you know. Bart Coleman. I'm not going to say I'm surprised. Jill Soloway. Yeah, there's quite a few. Yeah. So, yeah. Well. Also Serena Williams. But you, you Really? Have, you didn't know that one? No, I did, I've never yeah. Googled who has my birthday. <laughs> 
I'm so egocentric. I was just like, <laughs> it's just my me. day. It's just me. <laughs> it's my day. Huh. That's it. Okay, yeah. so in the in the 1990s, then when you when you're back in Lebanon, is there comedy there? No, no, no. I started stand up comedy in the Middle East in '99. How so did you, how do you do that? You you start slowly, mm-hmm. small shows here and there, kind of proving the model that it works, that you can make money off of this. But where is here and there uh, in you, Beirut? Clubs, clubs, but not, nothing's purposed for comedy. Right. So, so you go to a bar. Or a mm-hmm. nightclub, or anything, and you tell them, "Hey, when what what night do you guys close?" It's usually was Mondays. Yeah. <laughs> and what, I t- what I t- night t- do you not make any money? Yeah, what night do you do you literally have no income? Right. Uh, give me that night. I'll fill it up for you. I don't want any money. Okay. I'll just show you that this thing can work, and I'll bring in a star clientele. I'll bring in some classy people. It's not going to be like some weird drugged up kind of thing. It'll be something that you would want as an image for your place. You know, mm-hmm. we had to work on so many fronts to get people first convinced with the business model. Then they loved it because they're like, oh, this is one guy. The sound setup's easy. You just put a mic. You know, then it, it it's easy to catch on when it comes to stand-up. Those first shows, was it just you or did yeah. you bring? No, there, there isn't anyone to bring. I was, I'm telling you, I you started didn't... it from, begin, <laughs> from scratch. And then I went from Beirut to Jordan and then Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. Qatar, Oman, Kuwait, Dubai. And for 15 years, I basically did everything I could to, to, to get it where it so is So what I saw, like I remember... Jesus, almost a decade ago, Ahmed Ahmed's documentary, Just Like Us, where he... That was in Egypt, yeah. He was saying... Well, but he also took the comedians to Beirut and to that was, Saudi Arabia. Was that that, that one or Access that was like of a Evil? Di- uh, no, that was, that was a different showcase where okay, yeah, yeah, different yeah. Americans. Yeah. Oh, he did that as well. Yeah, in, in, but, but you would have to... But he, well, they he had, had, we had done Access of... Ahmed, but to Ahmed do that, had, you, had to, you had to set the scene first before he could... I, I, was the fir- I was the first one to bring out Ahmed Ahmed to the Middle East. So when, when Ahmed Ahmed and Majabrani and everybody mm-hmm. came in as the Axis of Evil back right. in 2006. Okay. It was 2005 or 2006 or 2007. I okay. can't. I'm, I, I Don't quote me on any, but yeah, it's yeah. definitely one of those three, not sooner. Um, I teamed up with Showtime and pitched them the idea. So that was, that was, that was part of the development of the scene. That was us, com- Showtime Arabia, OSN as they are called, okay. Orbit Showtime Network. And they were looking for, they actually approached me to do a comedy tour. And I told them, it's not gonna, I'm not good enough. I wasn't good enough yet to go to different countries. And I knew that if the show, if people didn't like the show, then mm-hmm. they would be like, stand up is Nimmer, didn't like Nimmer, therefore don't like stand up. That would kill me in the long term. How, since you're so egocentric to think that September 26th is your day, how are you able to separate <laughs> your ego enough career wise to know? That if, headlining if yourself I, I've, was a I've, bad I've idea. I've been surprised to meet stand-up comics with egos. On a serious note, mm-hmm. I don't know how you could have an ego and be a stand-up comic. I've seen it, <laughs> but it perplexes me. I think by nature, you kind of lose your ego, A, by being beat down on stage. Mm. And then B, by realizing that when you walk onto a stage, those are your bosses basically in the crowd. And if you don't make them laugh, if you can't relate to them, then they're not gonna, they're going to stop coming, right? So if you're going to get an ego and start seeing yourself above the crowd, then they're not going to be able to relate to you anymore. So your career kind of dies out of inevitability. So I always, I, I didn't start realizing that the ego thing could actually come into play. At the time, mm-hmm. it just made perfect business sense. I'm, I studied finance. I'm a business student. I love business. Well, maybe that's a difference. You need the model. Then, because Probably. you were thinking of it business-wise, whereas yeah. a lot of young young comedian, American comedians mm-hmm. that, that I see now, they want everything immediately. They want that's the worst thing that could happen to you. Right. They want, but you're fast successful. You were able to think business wise and go, oh, no, yeah. I can't have this too soon because 
First of all, then the whole enterprise soon, will fail. The whole enterprise is on my shoulders. Right. Maybe it'll succeed, but that'll be only because of me. Maybe it'll fail, but that'll be also only because of me. Why take the risk? What's the point? It's even better for me if I can start to build it as an industry and have multiple options because it's very good for somebody to come in and say, I don't like Nimmer. I prefer this person as opposed to I don't like Nimmer. Let's get a band. <laughs> That's you know what I'm saying? That's right. dangerous. So I figured in that in that context, plus I was like overworked. I was burned out. I mean, it's tough to take on the whole region by yourself. It's not, it wasn't easy. So I could use the help. And I was a fan of the Axis of Evil DVD. I thought it was really funny. I thought the quickest barrier to entry for Arabs to get into an American art form was to have it presented to them by fellow Arabs. Right. I thought the concept was really cool as well. And uh, plus it helped that Showtime were like, yeah, this is cool. Let's do it. As opposed to, you know, if I had pitched it to them and they said, no, who would have known what would have happened? But when I, when I, I just throw them the DVD and they watch it and they're like, oh, wow, this is perfect. I attached myself to the Beirut show and on and then in Dubai and okay but um but I helped mainly out with the promotion the setup of it and when they were filming and producing it and then I went on to do my own special a year later uh in Beirut which was the first special uh, coming out of the region from a regional comic and um I've done si six or five seven since something like that when you when you brought the access of evil mm. guys over for that showtime special mm. I didn't bring them over personally it was but a you, collaboration right. yeah okay I just um, want to be clear wasn't me paying them. Well, but it, what I'm more interested in is what was the effect on the comedy scene? People saw Did, the, the, the objective of it for me was to show A, that this kind of art form can really shift tickets on a large scale. Because you want, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how funny you are. I mean, you know this more than anyone. How many comedians today are, are booking shows and they're not even the slightest bit funny, but because they can put asses in the seats. Right. You know, If you're a businessman, you're running a venue, you want to get a comic that sells. It would be better if you could get a funny comic that sells, but the the, the, the necessity is that he or then she sells. more about the ticket sales and the yeah. liquor sales. So I figured, let me, okay, I, I know I'm funny. Mm -hmm. My family and friends know I'm funny. My fans know I'm funny. Uh, I need to now show the, the business side that they can make money off of me and the industry. If, if we can do that, then they'll use, they'll share their people with me. And I figured, you know, I'll give them something to make them more eager to embrace this art form. So that was basically how how it, the concept started. I mean, that was a smarter way to do it, to expand your fan base. I mean, it wasn't like here in the US, the, it's like, I just want visibility. Visibility wasn't enough. You know, I had to film shows and I would edit them and we'd, mm -hmm. it'd be a pretty a special. And then I put it online for free just because I needed as few, as little barrier to entry to everyone to check this art form out. So they could watch it and be like, Nimmer's hilarious and the stand-up comedy thing is great. This show looks like fun. Look at all the people laughing and having a good time. How much is a ticket? What? 40 bucks? 20 bucks? I can afford this and have a great time. Let's go. Now, this ties into everything I've read about the global expansion of comedy. Usually references YouTube. And says huge. That, yeah, and huge. It says that YouTube allowed people in other countries, especially non-English speaking ones, to see. The, the Middle East see, is English speaking, though. That's the thing. Right. So all the stand-up I've ever done has been in English. And everybody pretty much also does it in English there too. But So it's uh, even easier. No, the difference there was it's not the, the, the main reason YouTube was so imperative was if you weren't gonna go online, mm -hmm. it means you had to go up through a network. All the networks are politically backed. So if I'm gonna go with one TV station, I'm basically indebted to that religious sect and mm. politicians party. You're killing an independent voice. You can't have stand up like that. If I wanna go and do a show in Saudi Arabia, I'm gonna have to go through the TV stations there. Therefore, I'm gonna have a, a kingdom sanctioned show, which means women and men can't sit next to each other and religious police are gonna ask for a script. What I did is I used YouTube 
to, to gain a following so I could throw shows illegally in places like Saudi Arabia, and then people would still come out. And then we could have people sit together, and that is one of the reasons why things change. So now Saudi Arabia has a very young prince who's moving things forward and letting men and women sit together. Those were all things that we started with stand-up. And it was things like YouTube. It was before YouTube. I was using MySpace. I was going to say, what years were, was this happening? From MySpace. From the years of MySpace. So what did we talk, 2002, 2003, mm, It was more 2005. Five, Two, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's when I expanded outside of Lebanon. Okay. So before that, it was, you know, word of mouth, university, stuff like that. It was Lebanon smaller than San Diego County. Not yeah. very difficult to get what, it going. What was the first place that was easiest for you to expand I started to? out at my on at university. I, I went to the American University of Beirut. Mm -hmm. They used to have an outdoor concert, three days, and it would be like a festival. And I figured this is the best place to get stage time. I'll host and do comedy in between the bands. And I was lucky that everything went wrong with, with the organizers. So I'd always be up there for much longer than... <laughs> for like 30 minutes, 40 right, minutes. In between the bands, yeah. The mixer blew up, the band guy didn't show up, the whatever. So it's I- time for you. It was awesome. And I, I ended up, I mean, these concerts, you get like 8,000, 10,000 people. And you know, by the end of the first time I did it, I became a name. Because it was a huge exposure. People, you know, were filming it and then they put the clips up on the FTP servers at the university or put them up on YouTube or whatever mm -hmm. it was that was available or MySpace and however it propagated. So it was that kind of thing that allowed you to, for somebody, for 10,000 people to influence Several million right. was 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 the internet. What was the first place outside of Lebanon for you? Jordan. Jordan what was, was it the about first Jordan year. that made it the first. It was the Jordan. It was just you know, it just happened. Somebody Jordanians had seen my show and mm. they called and said, "Hey, you know, do you think we could produce and promote together?" And it was kind of like, yeah, I mean, for sure, let's let's go. It was just like, you know, we, I was waiting for a partner. I mean, you're going to these places. There's contracts you need to sign. You need a legal presence. You need you need somebody there. Um, and it helps if somebody wants to take the risk. So we jumped into Jordan first, and then it and then within the same year, it just it for lack of a better term, blew up across the Middle East. And I jumped to Oman, and and then Jordan did the um, Dino Bidala, who has a who's here in New York actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's worked with the kingdom in Jordan and set up a Jordanian comedy festival. Hmm. And that, so you started to see these, like, you know, there was now demand for this art form. Because from a business point of view, you take a look at a comic, you're like, okay, that's one flight, one mic, one person, not a band, multiple hotels, multiple whatever. So the demand immediately went up because people were selling it for the same price as a band for the hmm. ticket. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So it, that made it, so then you couldn't even, it got to a point where we couldn't keep up with demand. And that's when a bunch of promoters came in. That's where you came through a phase of people doing bullshit events, you know, where they, they market like some comic is coming. Then at the last set, that still goes on till today. There's a very well-known comic who's marketed as going to Beirut right now. And they're just like, oh, he's not coming. They put it in the caption. He can't make it because of the scheduling. But everybody else the is visa? There. They don't say the visa? They say schedule? You don't need a visa. Okay. To get into Lebanon if you're American. This guy's American. I don't want to mention names because it'll sound like I'm trying to hate, but I'm not. Uh -huh. He probably doesn't even know that he was on the bill. Uh, the, the thing is that event isn't selling at all because many years ago when that stuff used to happen, people realized that if they're going to buy tickets to something, they're only going to buy it with a with a promoter or a name that they know. So if I'm not involved or a couple of the radio stations that are known in the Middle East for doing this or a couple of the promoters aren't involved, people are like, eh, it sounds a bit too good to be true. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, but there was a period of time where it was a disaster and it needed a lot of control. Some big comics weren't being paid, other comics' names were being used. American comics? Oh yeah. Middle Eastern comics? Oh yeah, American comics. There are no Middle Eastern comics. There weren't Middle Eastern comics until just a few years ago. There was me, mm -hmm. and then American People comics. didn't see you and go, I can do that. 
That's the thing with the Middle East is they did. uh, And you had a few people come up for a minute. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, there was this stigma about going, like, how am I going to make money? Going out. I mean, this is, you're you're having to break way too much new ground. Here in the U.S., let's say you want to be a stand-up comic. You're 21 years old or you're 17 or you're 18 or you're 25 or you're 30. You walk into an open mic night on a Monday night. That's where you start, right? There isn't that. There isn't that starting point in the Middle East. There isn't a friend of yours that you know who does stand-up. There isn't a family member who says you're funny, hey, you should go try mm-hmm. stand-up. There isn't a special that you could watch on TV of, of a local regional person doing stand-up. You could see Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle, but the, the, the degrees of separation between somebody who doesn't even have a club within their continent and Dave Chappelle is pretty long, <laughs> large. So it was yeah. it was considered insanity. People thought I was insane for doing what I was doing for many, many years. Well, you, you do joke in the Showtime special that your your parents oh, yeah. were not happy. Yeah, yeah, and I make fun about getting on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. That's when my dad turned around. <laughs> the Rolling Stone magazine story is really funny because when I did, this is to what extent I was doing shows for tens of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. I made it onto the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. I posted it on my social networks. And uh, everybody, the comments were all like, hey man, it's so cool that you visualize your goals. And you know, they thought it was Photoshopped. <laughs> So they, you know, they, like that, <laughs> that's when you asked me, going back to your first question about right. humility. Well, how, how those people not... have probably been to one of the Trump golf properties where they see that, <laughs> <laughs> that Donald Trump has photoshopped himself onto many Time magazines. Magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those people were like, hey, you know, maybe one day and you're looking good and, you know, aim high. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really funny. I had to like post a picture with the magazine in my hands. But I mean, that, that goes to show you how much, how unexpected it would be for somebody to succeed in that industry because there was nobody else oh. doing it, period. So what was the calculus in terms of you coming back to America? Well, I've, I, when I came back in 2014, I had pretty much done everything there was to do in the Middle East. Um, comedy became a deterrent to extremism. ISIS trying to get into the country was difficult because of stand-up. So I, I don't think there was much more you could do with it mm-hmm. in terms of breaking new ground, it, it got to a point where it was like, okay, now I'm amazing and I'm fantastic and I'm just gonna make a lot of money. Believe it or not, not where I want it to be. You're gonna dull out, you know, you always wanna improve, especially as a comic. I figured, let me come to the US and compete. Find out if I'm a funny Arab or a funny comic. So I came out here, I didn't know all of this was gonna go down in the US and that would make my perspective actually mean something here about bringing people together and all that kind of stuff, but right. it, it so happened. So I kind of feel blessed that I can serve my country here in that capacity because of an adventure I went on in the Middle East. So in those four years between coming back to the U.S. and sitting here with me, yeah, was it... It was leading to this moment. No, was it... Not my question. My question <laughs> was, was it an easy path? No. Once you came back, or was it? Did you have to start from scratch? I mean, I guess it was easy. Now that I talk to people and they say that I, you know, getting a Showtime special in mm-hmm. three years is impossible and stuff like that. So I guess that means it was easy. But it, I consider my 15 years prior to this, or 16 before I came out here in Lebanon and the Middle East, to have been the reason why I was able to do something here in, in three years. It wasn't easy for me. I mean, you walk into clubs. Hi, I'm Nimmer. That's all you are to them. And I loved that. I loved the fact that I could walk up in front of crowds who had no clue who I was. And I knew that if they laughed, it was genuinely because I was funny, not because of the hype or the excitement or my reputation. So it was it was not difficult. It was very challenging. But the challenge was the reason I was here. So it was exciting for me. I, I don't consider it difficult. It was just kind of like I had an edge. I had a good amount of money. You know, I had a source of income from the Middle East. I didn't have to rush jobs or drive an Uber or anything. So in that respect, I'm sure it could have been much more difficult. I was able to use the money that I was making from the Middle East to kind of fund my, you know, time doing it correctly here in the US. Even the Showtime special, I filmed it, edited it, directed it, paid for everything myself, okay. completed it, and then we presented it to the to, to Showtime. 
Because I, I figured there was no way they're going to jump on board with some Lebanese dude who wants to film a special in Beirut and LA and, con and combine them. There's no way it would work. So I was like, let me do it. And then when we showed it to them, they're like, holy shit. They didn't, rev they didn't take a single thing out. It wasn't revised or anything. They took it as is. So your American audience is like, you're here in New York this week to perform at the Gramercy yes, sir. Theater. What is your, what is, what kind of audience do you pull here in America? Well, I pull my original core fan base, which mm -hmm. are Arabs. But uh, it's now getting to the point, I mean, we ju I just got back from DC. We sold out six shows at the DC Improv. I mean, the majority was definitely American. The Showtime special has taken off really well. Um, I try push my publicist as much as I can to get me as many interviews like this so Americans can hear about me. And I put a lot of stuff, you know, online. I try to do my best to reach out to Americans. The point of me coming here wasn't to milk an existing audience. The point of me coming out here was to bridge a gap. I think that my, I don't think I know that my perspective can actually service America quite a bit. And I always believe stand-up comedy is in the service of your crowd. So I came out here to be at the service of my people, for real. So at the Gramercy Theater and all these places, we're getting a ton of American people coming in. When I say American, I mean non-Arab American. Mm -hmm. Everybody else, black, Asian, you know, Caucasian, whatever it is, and whatever your background is. But it's important for me for everybody to be able to sit together in a room and laugh together. That does more change than you could imagine. I mean, trust me. Trust yeah. me. I came from the most divided place in the world, and we brought people together. This is a walk in the park for me, and it's but it's important. It needs to be done. Well, never. We could. We definitely could use a lot more uh, bringing together right now. I agree. In 2018. So I agree. I thank you for sitting here with me. Thanks I, for I, having me, man. It. I appreciate it. Thank Thanks. you so much. All right, great. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.